you're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So some religious leaders approach Jesus and ask him a question. There are seven brothers. One gets married and then dies. As is our custom, another brother marries his widow. He also dies. This happens seven times. And then to quote directly from verse 32, finally the woman also died. (laughs) Finally, indeed. (laughs) So that's the context. And here's the question. Whose property will she be in the life to come? It's a patriarchal, heteronormative question asked not because the questioner genuinely wants to know the answer, but because they want to trip Jesus up. The group of men asking this question are identified as people who do not believe in the resurrection. They're asking what they know is a ridiculous, hypothetical question because they assume Jesus' answer will prove just how ridiculous it is to believe in the resurrection and, by extension, how ridiculous it is to believe in Jesus. Whose property will this poor, tired woman be when she finally dies? No one's. Jesus says that the norms and practices of this world are not the norms and practices of the resurrected life. This woman will not be anyone's property. She will no longer be a wife. She will be like an angel. She will be a child of God, a child of the resurrection. Jesus is saying, as Jesus says so very often, my ways are not your ways. If you want to follow me, you have to set aside your assumptions and learn to see the world in a new way. For example, since the world that Jesus has come to bring about does not include a system that treats women as property, maybe we can rethink our earthly systems that to this very day still tend to treat women that way. Maybe we can apologize for all the ways we, in the world and in the church, have privileged heterosexual marriage with children as the golden standard of godly living and begin to celebrate a greater diversity of ways of living. If you don't happen to be a single person, take some time sometimes to listen to the experiences of single people because I fully expect that it will break your heart when you discover all the ways, subtle and not so subtle, that they're told they don't quite measure up. We can do better. Jesus answers their question in the life to come. Women are not property. And then he says something I find strikingly beautiful. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Over and over in scripture, we're told that the way of Jesus is the way of life. In John 10.10, we're told that Jesus came to bring life and life to the full. And this is an idea we'll be exploring in more detail this November in our Wednesday night series on vocation. We're going to drill down into the questions, what would it look like if each of us were fully alive? If each of us lived fully into who God created us to be? I hope you'll join us. 
In our gospel reading, we have a group of people questioning Jesus about the resurrection, and in our reading from Thessalonians, we find Paul trying to correct false teachings about the life to come. Paul is not my favorite writer. In case you didn't know already. (laughs) His words have been used to hurt me and many people I love very deeply. There's this new trend on social media where people are beginning to post publicly the hate mail and death threats they receive privately, and it's shocking to see how much hate and ugliness comes from people who claim to follow Jesus. And it's shocking how often they use Paul's words to justify their hatred. Tomorrow, we will remember all the people who died because of war, and we will say, never again. And on Wednesday, in services all around the world, the names of transgender people who were killed in the past year because of bigotry and fear will be read aloud, and those lists will be long, and we will once again say, never again. Now tonight is not the time to unpack all the ways that Paul's words have have wounded people and the myriad of ways he's been misunderstood, often willfully misunderstood, But we can look in more depth at tonight's reading to discover a man who seems genuinely distressed that his teachings are being misinterpreted. In her excellent book, One Coin Found, Reverend Emmy Kegler, who, as a queer woman with a call to the priesthood, has her own struggles with Paul, imagines his life and his work in this way. I began to retrace Paul's backstory a young man convicted in faith watching the stoning of a seeming heretic, a righteous man on the warpath for the Lord, well-trained in scriptural interpretation and overly confident in his application. Oh no, she writes. A perfectionist who pursued God with zeal but got knocked off his high horse and had to change everything he understood about faith. Explaining what God had done in his life, blending his experience and philo- with philosophy and scripture, Periodically horrified by what other so-called Christians were up to. Periodically his opinions on everything else, on how everyone else should think and act, were wrong. And this was sounding irritatingly familiar to her. Sounded a lot like herself. Later she writes, I was coming to know him not as my opposition, but as my brother, as flawed and as hopeful as I am. I heard his hope in the letters he wrote to his communities. He planted churches and then moved on, trusting in the work of the Spirit to move them more towards Christ, only to receive letters with questions that could not be answered. Scholars consider his letter to the church in Thessalonica, the letter we read from tonight, the first written words of the New Testament. And our best guess, given the content of his letter, is that his new church was confused. He had promised the return of Jesus to gather the faithful and transform the world, but instead Jesus had not yet returned. Unfaithful members of the community had died. Death was supposed to be conquered. Christ was supposed to be victorious. How could this have happened? Emmy imagines Paul pacing his tent, dictating to his scribe, Do not grieve as those who have no hope. Death is not the end of the story. Those who have gone on before us will not be away from us for long. I'm comforted in Paul's promise of Jesus, she writes, both powerful enough to resurrect the dead and humble enough to take on flesh. 
Like Emmy, I can imagine Paul full of energy, unable to stay still, pacing around in his tent and dictating this letter to a scribe. Paul rarely wrote anything by his own hand. The section we read tonight starts, As the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we beg you. I tend to think of Paul as exhorting, correcting, challenging, but begging? So this must be pretty serious stuff. We beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Miriam Camel explains that the word we have translated as shaken implies a violent movement like an earthquake. What is occurring in this church is not a mild questioning about how things might work out, but an earthquake of theological doubt that is leaving vast destruction in its wake. Likewise, the word for being alarmed is the fear caused by surprise. Having begun in one direction based on the teaching of Paul when he was with them, they have been surprised by this new teaching, and their fear is that of having their foundation pulled out from underneath them. They are paralyzed, scared, uncertain of what to believe and how to act. And Paul knows how scared and shaken they are, and this is why he writes with such urgency. The people are shaken and alarmed because they've heard conflicting teachings about what is going to happen next. When is Jesus returning? Has he already returned? And did he leave them behind? Paul, after begging them not to be deceived by false teachings, reminds the church in Thessalonica of what he has taught them before, saying, Do you not remember I told you these things when I was still with you? I wonder what Paul would think about all the ways his words have been twisted and misused throughout the history of the church. I suspect it would break his heart. Here he was in his lifetime having to counter false teachings from others, so imagine what he would think if he discovered that his own words had been deformed into false teachings in our present day. The community in Thessalonica, once solidly committed to Paul's teachings, are now unsettled by false teachings that are coming from all sorts of sources. Paul says these false teachings may arrive by spirit, by which he means something other than the Holy Spirit or by word or by letter, as though from us. And that's how false teachings always spread. Once they begin to take root in a community, it can be almost impossible to trace them back to their original source. Many people from Paul's day to today have been very interested in trying to predict to the future. Entire industries have been created where people try to match up current events with biblical prophecies, and they can be really convincing and it's easy to get sucked in. But Paul is begging us not to be deceived. If you want to have a discussion over a beer after church about what all of these things might mean, it can be a fun academic exercise. If you want to, like the men in tonight's gospel, explore a hypothetical question about relationships and the life to come, go for it. But don't take those things so seriously that you become obsessed or deceived by them. There are way better ways to spend your time. What I do think we should take seriously is Paul's desire that we resist being quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. In November, the lectionary always throws the weirdest, most difficult readings at us, and tonight is no exception. It may be hard to find yourself in these stories about fairly abstract ideas, what will happen in the life to come, that are rooted in very specific historical circumstances, the last days of Jesus' earthly ministry, the earliest days of the church in one particular place. 
But I suspect that we can all identify times in our life where we've felt shaken to our core, when it wouldn't have surprised us at all to discover that we had lived through a literal earthquake, when everything we thought made sense, everything we thought we could trust, everything we thought was a firm foundation crumbled under our feet. I suspect we can all identify times when nothing seems stable, nothing seems secure, times when you desperately looked around for something, anything solid to grab onto, but you just couldn't seem to find anything at all. I'm not entirely sure why, but when I look back at my life, October is often an earthquake month for me. Things just seem to happen in October that shake everything up. It happened to me again this year, and I'm still nowhere from feeling settled. And I can't identify with the specific issues the church in Thessalonica was dealing with, but I can identify acutely with that feeling of being shaken. And so I also take comfort in Paul's counsel to those early Christ followers. Sometimes I believe him with all my heart. And sometimes I need to grab onto his words with a defiant hope that even if I do not believe them today, I might believe them tomorrow. Sometimes a defiant hope in the possibility that I might believe is actually all I have. Paul ends this section of the letter with words of encouragement. He reminds the people that they are God's beloved, that God's love for them is solid and trustworthy, God's love is the foundation that will allow them to, as Paul writes in verse 15, stand firm and hold fast to traditions that were taught to us, either by word of mouth or by letter. And isn't that exactly what we need when we feel shaken? Especially if we feel like God has forgotten us as the church in Thessalonica did? When we have been shaken and feel abandoned, we need to be reminded of this foundational truth. We are all God's beloved, and God will never, ever abandon us. Paul closes the section of this letter with a beautiful blessing. May it be an encouragement to each of us today and in the days to come. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and through grace gave us eternal comfort and good hope. Comfort your hearts and strengthen them in every good work. May it be so. In the name of our steadfast God who is creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.